Welcome everyone to episode 37 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. It has ape hanger handlebars, upswept mufflers, and an ironic stars and stripes emblazoned gas tank. It is Captain America, the chopper driven by Peter Fonda's Wyatt in Easy Rider, and a chromed out icon of 60s counterculture on the open road. As time passed, Captain America became the centerpiece of this anti establishment middle finger of a movie. People who watch the film, in which Wyatt and Dennis Hopper's Billy cross the country, wheel on wheel, on a tragic quest, imagined discarding their own possessions and reshaping their idea of the American dream. But they really just loved that bike. This story is entitled The Battle Over Captain America, The Chopper from Easy Rider, and it is uncharacteristically from Maxim.com. Now, 40 years later, Captain America is a movie prop worth millions of dollars that rests at the center of a messy legal battle over the bike's authenticity. The problems started last fall when the Profiles in History auction house, which specializes in Hollywood artifacts, put Captain America up for sale. Its owner was a collector and realtor named Michael Eisenberg. The bike hit the auction block and sold for a princely $1.35 million. Then, along came a Texan named Gordon Granger, who claimed that he was, in fact, in possession of the original Captain America. The sale was nullified. Lawyers descended. Now, the chopper is locked at the center of a quarrel between two men both claiming rightful ownership. To solve the dispute, they turned to none other than Grizzly Adams star Dan Haggerty. Haggerty knew the Captain America better than most as he wrangled bikes on the set of Easy Rider, The dispute seemed settled when Haggerty issued this statement. The bike, owned by Michael Eisenberg, is the only authentic Captain America bike that was rebuilt from the original frame up. The other bike in question is, and always has been, a replica of the original bike. Haggerty passed three polygraph tests last fall, and Eisenberg remains confident in the authenticity of his bike. However, a 2008 video seems to show Haggerty falsely stating he sold the original to the Guggenheim Museum. It gets weirder still. In 1996, Haggerty, who has served jail time for selling cocaine and tax evasion, was deep in debt. So, he sold Captain America to Granger for $63,000. The sale went through Dan Cruz Classics in Texas. Tiffany Cruz, Dan's daughter, says Haggerty passed it off as the original. Although he didn't put anything in writing, she says, everybody believed it was the original bike. Granger, who now calls Haggerty one of the biggest fucking liars in the world, still maintains that Haggerty told the truth back then. This was the real deal, he says. I'm 100% convinced. That claim is also a bit dubious. In 1999, Granger let the Art of the Motorcycle exhibit at Chicago's Field Museum label his bike a replica. Granger says it was too expensive to update the catalog from its run at New York's Guggenheim Museum, which actually had a replica. Meanwhile, in a Chicago Tribune article that ran around the time of the exhibit, Haggerty says Granger owned a copy with only a few bits and pieces, a chain or a fender, nothing more, and that he still had the original frame in California. In 2002, Haggerty apparently offloaded that frame to John Parnham, president of the National Motorcycle Museum. After a History Channel segment around 2005 featured both owners, Granger asked Haggerty to give him something in writing. Haggerty signed a certificate of authenticity, but says he made an honest mistake. I thought I was signing something that said Granger's was a replica I had built, he says. Haggerty is really not on top of things, says Parnham. In 2010, a fire destroyed Granger's roadside warehouse in Austin, which held his bike and other collectible vehicles. The bike wasn't damaged, but he used the occasion to tell local news outlets that this was the original Captain America. Although no arrests were ever made, the authorities deemed it arson. 
Last fall, Granger says he contacted Profiles in History. When they stopped returning his queries, he contacted Fonda's lawyer as well as reporters. Fonda told the Los Angeles Times he wanted the auction called off, calling the confusion embarrassing and infuriating. Fonda always took credit for designing and building the bikes. Only recently, however, did he acknowledge the work was actually done by a team including Cliff Vaz, a civil rights activist who belonged to an interracial biker club. Vaz was fired from the movie and wiped out of history. What Fonda did was despicable, says Paul DeOrleans, author of The Chopper, The Real Story, and an expert on motorcycle history. Vaughn's, for his part, says there's no way to tell from looking at the frame whether it was or wasn't the original. According to Parnham, Fonda undermined Eisenberg because Eisenberg had offered Fonda a cut of the proceeds in exchange for his celebrity push, but refused Fonda's demands for more money. I don't think Granger is on the up and up, says Parnham. He's just the loudest guy, and sooner or later someone listened. Meanwhile, the auction house remains in denial. When asked to confirm that the sale fell through, a spokeswoman sent a release from October proclaiming the $1.35 million sale. When pressed as to whether this meant the sale was finalized, she responded, Yes, it was also printed in the Los Angeles Times. That's called a lie, Dorland says. If he had to give an educated guess, Dorlands believes Eisenberg's bike is the most authentic model. The truth, however, is neither man owns the bike Fonda rode in the film. That was stolen, along with the two used by Dennis Hopper, before the movie was released. All that remained was the burned wreckage of the replica stuntman Tex Hall rode in Easy Rider's flaming finale. Fonda let Haggerty keep the remnants. Haggerty apparently built up the bike around the original frame. Parnham acknowledges that after buying it from Haggerty, he had the seat and wheels redone using stills from the movie to make it more authentic. Dorland says that while Eisenberg has the most legitimate claim, it's all relative. What are you buying? Best case scenario, you're buying the stunt bike's blown up frame. They can claim to have pieces of the true cross, but Jesus is gone, man. He's left the building, and so has Captain America. Iconic myths about the American white bison are scattered among the oral tradition of various Native American tribes, stretching from Canada to Mexico. Respected mythologist Joseph Campbell sometimes shared the essence of the white buffalo mythology in his lucid lectures. He spoke of the abundant wisdom and universal truth to be found in the seed of such oral tradition. Campbell declared the white bison oral stories to be more than myth. He characterized them as the keepsake of a sustainable culture. For nearly two millennia, clans of America's Great Plains have revered white buffalo calf woman. She is entwined in the core beliefs of modern native spirituality. Among white bison lore, the Lakota mythos prevails and speaks of a heavenly entity with a fascinating prophecy. From AncientOrigins.net, this story is entitled mythological creatures are among us Tatanka Ska the sacred white bison and this is part one of a two part story the other part will be in the next episode because this is kind of a long one dating back 19 lifetime generations by Lakota accounts the white bison became immortal when a mysterious spirit being known as Wakanwiyan or holy woman spirit visited a gathering of the Teton tribes in the sacred Black Hills of South Dakota. This angelic being first materialized before two scouts up on a ridgetop. The men were surveying the land by the elders' command, looking for game to feed the gathered clans. Crossing the sky like Wope, or shooting star, Wakan appeared before the scouts in the form of a lovely native woman. She was our naturel. Her long black hair covered her like a thick tachin of tea or buffalo skin robe. Reminiscent of fire, brimstone, flaming sword, and retribution-seeking angels of the Old Testament, Wakan Wiyan was compelled to display her great powers. One of the scouts expressed his desire for this beautiful woman spirit. He claimed her for his teepee and went to embrace her without consent. He was enveloped in a swirling cloud of smoke, and when it cleared, 
the irreverent scout was reduced to a pile of worm-filled, scorched bones. The remaining brave thought to draw his bow on this dangerous woman in fear for his life, but he wisely decided against it. He realized a great Wakan was before him. The scout averted his eyes and began to pray. He was rewarded for his humility and respect. The angelic spirit being kindly bid the honorable brave to go to his people and announce her coming visit. Do not mourn your companion, she said. He has gone where he wished to be. Back in camp, the scout told of meeting a Wakan Weeyan and explained the fate of his companion. He implored the people to set up a big medicine teepee in the heart of the encampment so all could be blessed by her divine presence. Four days later, the lovely Wakan appeared in camp astride a massive bison. The creature reminded the people of an ancient story the elders recite. She was dressed in white buckskin and adorned with the finest fringe, feather, quill, and color ever seen. Her exquisitely braided hair almost touched the ground, and the beads on her moccasins sparkled like the stars as she walked. Wakan pronounced to the people she had come to provide the clans with abundance. A great feast ensued in her honor. She served everyone, feeding the children first, the mothers and elders next, then Wakan honored the men. For several days after, she taught the clan's ceremonies involving Makachi Ina, Earth Mother, Wakan Tanka, Grandfather Creator, and Tanka Sila, Great Spirit Mystery. The ceremonies were created for the Sweat Lodge, Naming, Healing, Adoption, Marriage, Vision Quest, and Sundance ceremonies. Her gifts to the Teton tribes were the ceremonies of gratitude, accompanied by song and dance, the sacred ceremonial prayer pipe, and the trilogy of maize, melon, and squash seed. Wakan asked the clans to cherish the Chinunpa and evoke the sacred ceremonies often. She advised them to share her seeds and prophecies with all human beings. In return, the prayers of the clans would be answered. As she departed, Wakan promised to reappear during a time of great change. I will see you again, she said. Until then, you will find me in the smoke of the Chinunpa. The people watched Wakan Weeon shapeshift into a black-colored bison calf, then a brown calf, a yellow one, and finally, the sacred white bison calf. As the white calf galloped away, a herd of bison appeared and began grazing near the encampment, blessing the clans with abundance. Since then, Wakan's given name has been Tison Wee, white buffalo calf woman. Undoubtedly, one of the most hopeful of all mystical prophecies, the four colored calves white buffalo calf woman revealed portray a symbolic symbiosis among the four races of humanity, and a metaphorical unification of the four great islands or continents. No matter when this prophecy is said to come true, this Wakan upholds great respect, necessitates veneration towards all creation, and facilitates profound spiritual and intellectual awakening. Above all, this primal theology of a sustainable culture speaks to humanity's dire need to rekindle great respect for Makochiina, our sacred Mother Earth. In the annals of written history, a few Euro-American wagon train journals described seeing the rare white bison as determined pioneers came west across America's Great Plains. The respected explorer and author Dr. Josiah Gregg wrote an internationally popular book about his experience of traveling along America's Santa Fe Trail. Gregg states, in 1833, a white bison was killed by the Cheyenne. The Cheyenne sacrificed the sacred bison in good faith during the Leonid meteor shower, the night the stars fell, and scribed a peace and trade treaty with the U.S. on its skin. This hide is on display at Bent's Old Fort in La Junta, Colorado, a National Historic Site. Dr. Josiah Gregg reportedly died in early 1850, near the north shore of Clear Lake, California. In November of 1849, he embarked on an expedition from the Trinity Goldfields to locate and map the elusive Humboldt Bay. Starting with only 10 days provisions, Gregg's party did find and survey Humboldt Bay, but over a month expired in the process. After mapping the bay, the men wandered south through the ancient redwood forest of the Mayacamas Mountains, heading to San Francisco.
They exhausted all provisions and harsh winter struck them. Game was scarce, ammunition and morale low. In fact, the party split up. A published account of the Mad River incident tells of well-earned animosity held by Greg towards a few members of his crew for their disloyalty. In mid-February of 1850, unable to find a trail through the impenetrable mountain terrain, Greg changed direction, heading east to Sacramento. On February 25th, at Clear Lake's North Shore, Josiah Gregg became so cold, hungry, and weak, he fell off his horse. It's said he died from the fall and was buried under a pile of rocks by his companions. Suspicion arose in Sacramento when the crew arrived. The men could not account for Dr. Gregg's precious transit, sextant, and expedition journals. Gregg's descendants offer an alternative version of his disappearance. They claim a Clear Lake native woman, likely of the Danaka clan, found him in the bush, barely alive. She revived Josiah Gregg, and he lived with the people of the lake for the rest of his days. A century to the year after Josiah Gregg witnessed the symbolic Cheyenne White Bison Treaty, a landmark event confirmed by Canada's First Nations says, a white bison was born there in 1933. The birth of this calf fulfilled the Canadian tribe's most sacred prophecy, signifying just as the Lakota prophecy does, a future era of hope and renewal that will bring about peace and harmony among all people of Earth. Since 1933, across the North American continent, several white bison have been born, most in the past few decades. Scientifically speaking, why are some buffalo white? Are they albino or a beefalo? Beefalo are a cattle and bison crossbreed. In fact, the true white bison is the result of a recessive leucistic gene, not albinism or a hybrid. Just as the polar bear is white by design, the massive bison of the Ice Ages were likely to be white, evolving over time to yellow, brown, or black coloration as diet, locale, and climate changed. An explanation for the trait of white coloration is the genetic law, which states that genes available to any organism come directly from the parents. Fewer parents produce less diversity. That means recessive genes and mutations, such as the white coloration, tend to proliferate in an isolated, low-population scenario. This effect is known as genetic drift. The intended extermination of 30 million bison in the 1870s by anti-native factions bent on starving the Plains tribes created a genetic bottleneck, reducing the bison genetic code to its roots in the DNA of Antiquus. Genes are also sensitive to extreme environmental fluctuations and the biological stress of modern-day pollution, the proposal being that American bison appears to be on genetic alert, preparing to revert to a time when white coloration was a dominant gene. This radical response to a lack of genetic diversity, climate change, and environmental toxicity entertains several questions. Considering the odds of a white bison birth are estimated to be 1 in 10 million, the math doesn't add up. Only about 20 to 30,000 genetically pure American Plains bison exist. Another half million are hybrid beefalo. With these odds in mind, one authentic white bison birth becomes an astronomically remote chance. So why the resurgence? Since 1933, when Big Medicine was born in Montana, 40 white bison births have been documented across North America. Others go unreported. Questions arise as to the genetic origins of these animals. Statistically, a few are likely to be albinos, and more are surely Charolais white buffalo. In any case, two white bison are presently roaming about that were DNA tested at the University of California, Davis. UC Davis confirmed both specimens are healthy, pure-blooded American Plains bison. There are other obvious candidates across the North American continent that merely lack formal genetic authentication. This tally radically defies the odds, reinforcing the native prophecy of a time when four calves will be born white and progressively change colors prior to the return of Tison Wee. Are we currently in what white buffalo calf women refer to as a time of great change? Is the recent proliferation of white bison a genetic, environmental, as well as spiritual sign of the culmination of her prophecy.
did I end up here? I went in search for a place I used to dream about. What am I waiting for? The tide to recede. The ocean to calm. Dream as in sleeping or dream as in aspiration? Sleep and dream. Funny that my aspirations couldn't get me going. Why am I searching for this dream? Or rather, what do I expect? Not sure, hence these semi-rhetorical questions, but something profound of significance. Was it just a one-off dream? On the contrary, it was the only recurring dream I ever had. Did I have it often? No, yearly, maybe not even that. How old was I when I first had it? Nine-ish? Do I still have these dreams? No, therefore, my search. When did they stop? As a teenager? Did that upset me? Have I been pining for these dreams since then? Not at all. They were never regular enough to notice when they stopped for good, and the worries of a teenager always preoccupied me more. Did I forget about this dream? No, I always remembered. I always kind of missed them. They were different than my other dreams. As if... As if what? As if it were more than just a dream. So what the fuck was this dream that's got me in such a fervor? It was a world without form, before God spoke. Shades of yellowish gray distinguished the cloudless and sunless sky from an indistinct surface. Not land, but ever-shifting waves of honeycomb-like dunes. A barren world, except for my two older brothers and me. What were we doing? Separated across the large expanse of the shifting landscape, we called back and forth, but the sounds were in slow motion, as if from some aural strobe light effect. The whole environment vibrated on an odd frequency, humming through the air and shimmering the light. The surface ebbed and flowed erratically, drastically so. Then, instead of calling to each other, we were throwing something that managed to be a football, a frisbee, and a boomerang all at once, and thus never quite anything. It, too, had a strobe light effect going, but not flashes of light, then darkness, just flashes of focus and non-focus, just as the gap between my brothers and I seemed near then unbreachably far. But my brothers stayed together. It was I who was cast far away to the even more remote, barren, isolated tracts of this alien world. Dreams tend to settle down, if still remaining bizarre, as one gets comfortable in the environment, learns the rule of the world. Did this one? No, it remained disorienting. The laws of physics were confoundingly absent, again as if this were a world pre-creation. Gravity seemed to exist, but not firmly so. But the world wasn't quite ruled by dream logic either. It was too barren for any sense to grasp onto, nothing there for even dream logic to work with. How did I feel upon waking up? I always awoke unsettled and enthralled. Lots of dreams stick, but none more so than this dream. It was so vibrant, forceful, visceral. Other dreams I always knew were just random brain nonsense. This dream felt significant, as if there were great meaning behind it. It was as if I had traveled to another place while asleep, for real. Mysteriously transported to another realm or dimension. But I never could find the meaning behind this dream, or the purpose for it all which I always felt was there. What does Freud say about this? I never checked, nor young. I figured it was special to me. Why now? I didn't quite grasp it back then. Childhood concerns drove it away. But exactly, why now? It started with a chance encounter with Honeycomb, that children's cereal... I no longer eat children's cereal. I don't have it around. I never see it. I don't have cause to. But I was visiting my brother, and he does have it because he has kids and indulges them with overly sweetened cereal. I was hungry late night, and there it was, so 
I poured a bowl and then the milk and then I saw it. Each bit of honeycomb cereal, even if only kind of looking like honeycomb, floating on the pond of milk, undulating, reminding me of my funky-ass trippy dream from way back in my own childhood. What did I do then? I thought I would have that dream again, that concentrating so deeply on my memory of it would trigger it. But night after night came and went with the usual boring dreams of odd anxieties and nonsensical sex fantasies. So I went searching for it? Not then. I figured, I still figure, that I needed to naturally go back there, drawn back to this place by something outside of me or deeply within me. Something that I don't have control over, can't have control over, don't want to have control over. Something that wants me to find out what it means. So, why didn't I let it? Oh, I tried, damn it, but nothing came. And then I moved on to something else in life. A normal person would, but I thought, let's find this place for real. It'll be fun. I had the time and the means. So, again, why now? Fuck, I'll know when I find it. What did I try? Drugs. Wandering out into sparse high deserts. Spelunking. Different drugs. Canadian glaciers. Sensory deprivation chambers. More drugs. How'd they work out? They didn't. But they were fun. But that wasn't nearly enough. No. I became stupid obsessed with this dream. I needed to find it. What's the urgency? After all these years, and only half a dozen dreams, though still feeling so vivid, subdued in appearance, but so unforgettably vivid, still it fades. Though, even as a child, when I still had the dreams, I couldn't quite grasp the vividness. Yes, but why the urgency now? The sense of a meaning, still waiting, still needing to be figured out, grows stronger with age. I need to get there and find out why. I have to be submerged into once more, perhaps more so than ever before, to know why I need to be there. Is that what I want? Yes, to be submerged, engulfed, enveloped, saturated. And that is how I ended up here? And that's how I ended up here in these dunes. Not a goddamn other person around. Fucking sand all over me. Like a big dumbass. And it's still in the right place. I'm still in the regular world. So this is just to escape reality? It seems that shallow, just bored with how things are, and want to find this strange world to explore around it. Just a weird, strange experience that had recurred and was found interesting, and it would be a nice change of pace to break up the monotony of the real world to experience again, and any greater significance I put on it, Speculation that it's real is just pure make-believe, just grafting meaning and explanations onto the unknown. But, but I could be wrong. And if I am, and if, then I would be a fool to pass it up. So what will I do when the ocean calms? Easily slip out into the gently swelling waves far offshore and float there letting the sea push and pull me around in a foreign or at least atypical environment. Why a calm sea? Crashing waves are just too violent. My dream was chaotic, but not dangerous, though I think even the ocean is too rhythmic. My dream never had a rhythm. So again, what do I hope to achieve? What do I expect if I do find that place out in the ocean? A jolt of recognition, then understanding perhaps leading to enlightenment? What do I remember most about the dream? The nearly unbearable emptiness. And if the sea still isn't the right place? Indeed, where else could I go but further out to sea? That story was titled Formless. It was written by Brian Brunson. from Appalachian Magazine, The Canary in a Coal Mine. 
I never saw my dad's father take a single step, even though he lived until I was nearly 30 years old. In fact, my dad only had one memory of his father walking, which dated back to a time when he was only four or so. The final 40 years of my grandfather's life were bound to the hells of a wheelchair and the unimaginable feeling of not being able to feel or move his own legs. Long before I was ever born, when my father was just a small child, my grandfather walked out of the front door of his simple West Virginia home in Mingo County, never to walk back through it again. He was an American coal miner, strong, proud, and fueled by an insatiable desire to provide an honest living for his family. But, to hear him tell it, he was lucky. There were four of us down there when the whole damn mountain come crashing down and I was the only one who came out alive. I broke my spinal cord, but all my buddies died in the explosion, he told me once, when I was about 13 and curiously inquired as to why he was in a wheelchair. Up to that point in my life, I merely accepted the fact that Papa rolled everywhere he went. This was the only time I ever recall him talking to me about his mining accident, an obligatory event he always simply referred to as back when I got hurt. Throughout its history, coal mining has always been a dangerous profession, so much so that according to the UK's Daily Express, during World War I, for men used to mining, fighting in the trenches was seen as an escape from hell. Though my grandfather's experiences in coal mining came to a crashing end with the noisy thunder of a violent explosion, a countless number of other Appalachian miners met their demise not with a bang and a blast, but instead silently, thanks to a mysterious and untraceable odorless gas which seemed to plague the coal mines of the late 1800s and early 1900s. The gas, which was simply known as minor gas, was colorless, odorless, and tasteless, being produced by much of the activity taking place deep within the mountain's mines. Improperly ventilated mine shafts exasperated these problems, leading miners' gas to build up and reach dangerous levels. It would be impossible to accurately determine how many miners died as a result of breathing mine gas, but what is known is that when too much mine gas was in the air, the miners' bodies replaced the oxygen in their blood with poison. When these levels became excessive, miners would suffer from headaches, weakness, dizziness, confusion, blurred vision, and ultimately loss of consciousness, which would lead to death if left untreated. Because of its odorless and tasteless nature, detecting or identifying mine gas was largely seen as a near impossibility by mine owners and safety officials. That was until 1911, when a Scottish scientist named John Scott Haldane concluded his studies in asphyxia in coal miners. After breathing several toxic gases in dangerous self-experimentation, Haldane identified mine gas as being carbon monoxide and concluded miners around the world were dying from carbon monoxide poisoning. The Scottish scientist's solution for detecting the presence of the odorless and tasteless gas was every bit as ingenious as it was simple. He suggested that miners carry small animals like mice or small birds down into the mines to detect dangerous levels of the gas in their working environment. Besides being portable, these animals had a high basal metabolic rate, making them exhibit symptoms of poisoning long before gas levels became critical among the workers. Though mice were far easier to obtain, it didn't take long for miners around the world to prefer the company of a canary. Canaries are very sensitive to the deadly gas of carbon monoxide found in mines, and the exhausted miners often found the company of a singing canary deep within the mines to be an unexpected morale boost during the long shift work to which miners were subjected. When the bird began to show signs of distress, the men knew that it was time to put on their rescue apparatus an early form of an oxygen mask supply. In many cases, miners would carry with them a small enclosed cage with a supply of oxygen for the distressed canary. The asphyxiated bird would be placed in this cage and the oxygen turned on with the result being that the bird usually recovered. As telephones became more common and safety telephone lines were run deep into the mines, the oxygen masks worn by the miners often made it nearly impossible for the miners to talk distinctly. To overcome this, 
portable safety telephones were created with a transmitter that was strapped over the vocal cords, enabling a rescuer wearing the breathing apparatus to maintain communication with the fresh air base for a distance of about a quarter mile. The practice of using canaries in coal mines continued well into the 1980s in many mines, with the small bird serving as a staple to the miners' work. Miners would often whistle with the bird while they worked. Eventually, one by one, canaries were replaced by electronic gas detectors. However, many miners were reluctant to embrace this change in technology, not wishing to chance the surety of comfort a living bird provided for the untried machines of man's inventions. These days, canary in the coal mine is a seldom used figure of speech that is used to identify an early indicator of impeding danger. However, not too long ago, canaries in coal mines were a real and literal warning system, a system that was trusted by miners and their families. It would be impossible to determine how many thousands of miners from all around the globe were able to hug their children and kiss their wives thanks to the service of a simple and unassuming small bird. On the morning of June 22, 1839, the Cherokee leader John Ridge was pulled from his bed, dragged into his front yard, and stabbed 84 times while his family watched. He was assassinated for signing the Cherokee Nation's Removal Treaty, a document that, in exchange for the tribe's homelands, promised uninterrupted sovereignty over a third of the land in present-day Oklahoma. That promise was not kept. From the WashingtonPost.com, a story by Rebecca Nagel. Half the land in Oklahoma could be returned to Native Americans. It should be. Sixty-seven years later, federal agents questioned John's grandson, William D. Polson. They needed to add him to a list of every Cherokee living in Indian Territory to start the process of land allotments. Through allotment, all land belonging to the Cherokee Nation the land John had signed his life for, would be split up between individual citizens and then opened up for white settlement. And by this grand act of bureaucratic theft, Oklahoma became a state. Today, on the same plot of earth where my great-great-great-grandfather, John Ridge, still lies, is a small cemetery holding five other generations of my family, when I'm buried, I will be the seventh. While the cemetery is surrounded by our allotment land and a cousin lives next door, none of it is Cherokee land. Land loss for Native Americans is framed as a historic phenomenon, but for tribes in Oklahoma, it never stopped. Through allotment, the Cherokee Nation lost 74% of our treaty territory. Today, we still lose land every time an acre is sold to a non-Indian inherited by someone less than half-blood quantum, or even when an owner lifts restrictions to qualify for a mortgage. After a century of the legal status quo, the Cherokee Nation has jurisdiction of only 2% of our land left after the allotment. While the initial hemorrhage of land loss occurred in previous centuries, we are still bleeding. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that could make the bleeding stop. On August 28, 1999, on a rural road outside Henrietta, Oklahoma, Patrick Murphy murdered fellow Creek citizen George Jacobs. He was tried and sentenced to death. In 2004, Murphy's public defender argued that the crime occurred within Muscogee Nation's reservation, and because only tribes and the federal government can prosecute crimes on Indian land, the state of Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction to try the case. In 2017, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit agreed. Oklahoma appealed, and now the outcome of Murphy v. Carpenter affects not only the fate of one man, but the treaty territory of five tribes and nearly half the land in Oklahoma. The history of tribal land, with small exceptions, has moved unforgivingly in one direction. Today, American Indian reservations comprise only 55 million acres, or 2% of all land in the United States. Meanwhile, the National Forest Service occupies 200 million acres. 
In the emergence of this great nation, our government set aside more land for trees than for Indians. If the Supreme Court upholds the Tenth Circuit's decision, the ruling would result in the largest restoration of tribal jurisdiction over native land in U.S. history. The undisputed fact of the case is that Oklahoma does not have jurisdiction if the murder occurred on reservation land. The disputed fact, and the question brought before the court yesterday is, whether the 1866 territorial boundaries of the Creek Nation constitutes an Indian reservation today. Creek citizens arrived in present-day Oklahoma at gunpoint. Their treaty territory, along with the Cherokees, Chickasaws, Choctaws, and Seminoles, was promised to them as long as the grass grows or the water runs. Yet, at the turn of the century, the government came, divided up that interminable land, and gave one parcel to each tribal citizen. Most of the allotted land quickly transferred to white ownership by sale, by swindle, or by outright theft. Between 1893 and 1907, the federal government took many different actions to force allotment on tribes. They threatened and coerced tribal leaders. They jailed traditionalists who refused to participate. They took over schools, courts, mineral resources, and even the dispersal of tribal funds. Amid the furious land grab, one important action Congress did not take was to legally terminate Creek Nation's reservation. According to the Supreme Court decision Solemn v. Bartlett, reservations cannot be terminated without a clear statement from Congress. That statement, in the historical record, simply does not exist. Oklahoma's position is that no such statement is needed because the sheer and devastating totality of everything that was taken away from the tribes, as the state's lawyer argued, is indication enough that Congress intended to leave them with nothing, much less a reservation and not one single absolute smidgen of sovereignty over their land. The attorney for Muscogee Nation, Riaz Kanji, rebuked this analysis, giving examples from tribes who, despite federal infringement, still clearly have reservations. Congress has told the tribes over time, you will allow this mining and these easements along your land, even if you don't want it. You will allow your children to be taken away and placed in boarding schools, even if no parent would want that. Maltreatment alone, Kanji argued, does not dissolve a reservation. More than a hundred Indian reservations went through allotment, and arguably every tribe has had something, whether land, children, money, books, or papers, seized by the United States or their surrounding state. If such hostile actions taken alone can be evidence to the Supreme Court that a reservation no longer exists, tribes could lose land without their or even Congress's consent. In short, it would set unique and dangerous precedent that merely treating native nations as though their land does not belong to them is enough to take it away. Oklahoma argued yesterday that the sky has fallen down, and if the Tenth Circuit decision is upheld, it will cease to function as a state. A compelling argument for people who know nothing about how reservations legally function. An entire body of law already governs states' relationships to tribes and those tribes' relationship to non-Indian residents. Half the states in the Union have reservations, and the majority of those have reservations that, thanks to allotment, have non-native-owned fee land where tribal jurisdiction is already limited. Reservations comprise 27% of the land in Arizona, and it functions just fine. The exact legal question presented by this case, whether the allotment of tribal land dissolved a reservation, was asked and answered by the Supreme Court less than two years ago. In 2016, eight of the nine justices ruled in favor of the Omaha tribe, and five of those justices are still on the bench. But the disputed area the Supreme Court upheld for the Omaha tribe is much smaller, has fewer non-native residents, and lacks the vast oil and gas reserves compared to 40% of the state of Oklahoma. If Oklahoma wins, the obvious reason will be the only difference between the two cases. Circumstance, not precedent. In 1835, the Supreme Court upheld the sovereignty of the Cherokee Nation against the state of Georgia in a landmark decision that effectively ended Andrew Jackson's campaign to remove all Indians west of the Mississippi. That was until Jackson simply ignored the decision. He famously remarked, Marshall has made his decision. Let us see him enforce it. 
As a result, Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Seminoles were rounded up by U.S. soldiers and forced on death marches, in which a quarter to a third of their citizens died. When Jackson vowed to defy the Supreme Court, there was one other man standing in the room. It was my ancestor, John Ridge. I'm not telling the story of my family and my tribe to ask the Supreme Court to change the law. I tell this story to ask that the law be followed. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Muscogee Nation, the land that John Ridge not only died on, but for, could be acknowledged as Cherokee land for the first time in more than a hundred years. John signed the Treaty of New Dakota knowing he would be killed for it, but believing that the rights of the Cherokee Nation enshrined in that blood-soaked document were worth it. 179 years later, the grass is still growing, the water is still running, and in eastern Oklahoma, our tribes are still there. And despite the grave injustice of history, the legal right to our land has never ended. And listeners, if you're interested in this story, the person who wrote it, Rebecca Nagel, also has a podcast, as it would turn out. Uh, It's called This Land, and it is about her ancestors and this case and how we got from there to here. And I'm still working my way through it, but so far enjoying that show quite a bit. So uh, check out the show notes to this episode. I've put a link in there to that. Have a look if you're interested. When I was little, my grandparents raised me. My dad had taken off long before I was even born, and my mom, in an attempt to give me the best possible life financially, worked two jobs during the weekdays and one on the weekend. I never saw her, so naturally my grandparents stepped up to the plate. Although we had our own apartment, I spent most of my time at my grandparents' house. They were retired and lived modestly, feeding off their pension and investments, living in a modest two-floor bungalow. They weren't rich by any means, but to a kid, this lifestyle was paradise. I loved staying with them and exploring all the nooks and crannies of their old house. I loved running around in the backyard in the summers as my grandma sprayed me with the hose. Most of all, though, I loved eating their home-cooked meals. Hands down, my grandmother made the best food I've ever tasted. She cooked slowly and with a lot of love, meticulously following recipes that had been handed down in our family for generations, but also not being afraid to add her own twist. Although there wasn't anything of hers I didn't like to eat, I went absolutely crazy for her pizza. My grandmother had Italian blood in her, and so her recipe for pizza was the real deal. Passed down to her from her mother, and her mother from her grandmother, all the way from the old country. The crust always ended up being thin, but somehow fluffy, melt-in-your-mouth delicious, with a fragrant, zesty sauce that never failed to get my mouth watering. The toppings didn't really matter much. As long as you nailed the dough and sauce, you nailed the pizza. Since it took so long to make and was so labor-intensive, she didn't make the pizza too often. Usually for special occasions like my birthdays or when I got into college, She even made one for me when I got engaged, even though she was dealing with some pretty intense health issues back then. After my grandparents both passed away, I decided I wanted to do something special to honor them. At that point, I was doing pretty well for myself. I had a stable job that paid okay, and I had gotten some solid inheritance money from their estate. So, to honor their memory, I decided to open my very own pizzeria. I named it Buchanan's, my grandparents' surname but one I did not share, and committed to selling my grandmother's authentic handmade pizza pies. And it did not do well. I don't know if it was the location or the cuisine, but this restaurant didn't even get off the ground before it crashed. I'd quit my job and sunk everything into this venture, with a contribution from both my mom and my husband. Plus, this wasn't just a business. It was my grandparents' memory we were talking about here. The fact that I couldn't muster more than 10 clients in a day was a huge heartbreak. One night, months after we opened, I was closing shop early. We normally closed at 10, but it was 9 and it had been a pretty brutal day. Usually we get a few orders for takeout and at least 4 or 5 people in the dining room, but tonight 
not a single soul had meandered into the restaurant. So I decided to get a head start on closing up so I could at least get home before our son went to bed. I was just starting to get the dining room in order when I heard it. A soft, faint knocking at the window, punctuated by the streaks of fingers against the clean glass. I peered outside, hoping it was a client, but nothing. No one. My eyes narrowed at the state of the evening, though. Outside was pitch black, weird for the neighborhood, which was usually illuminated by the white glow of streetlights, other businesses, porch lights, headlights. But tonight, nothing. That's when I also noticed that the air in my restaurant was, I don't know, weird, compressed, I guess, hot and stale, like someone had vacuumed up all the air inside and left only enough for me to breathe. Chalking it up to just one of those nights, I continued with what I was doing, lifting chairs to put them on tabletops so I could sweep and mop. Almost instantly, I heard it again, louder this time, the unmistakable sound of someone knocking on the glass door. I looked again, but again, there was no one. Figuring it was a prank by some of the neighborhood kids, I huffed over to the door, annoyed, and pulled it open, ready to yell at him in the darkness like some crazed madwoman. But a woman stood in front of me instead. She looked normal. Well, normal enough. Tall, thin, almost gaunt, the skin under her eyes stretched paper-thin and tinged an angry purple. The only thing unusual about her was the cameo pin she wore on her cardigan. It was small, but encrusted in shiny, dark jewels. It looked like she'd plucked it straight from the Titanic or something. For her part, she looked, well, she looked exhausted. I instantly felt bad for her, like I needed to be super nice. She reminded me of my mom, 15 years ago. Plus, maybe she wanted to buy some pizza. Plastering on a smile and putting on my best customer service voice, I said, Can I help you? The woman smiled, and when she did, her face seemed to light up. I felt both uneasy and relaxed at the same time. It was weird. I'm sorry, it's been a long day, and I really need to use the washroom. May I please come in? She asked, and motioned to the inside of the restaurant. I laughed. Washrooms are for paying customers only, I joked, but moved out of the doorway so she could enter. Okay, so she didn't want a pizza, but I could still use some company, even if for half a minute as I got her to the washroom. Oh, all right. Well, I don't have any money on me, but... Mommy? A little girl's voice squeaked from behind the woman, and I jumped, not having noticed her before. Peering deeper into the darkness, I could make out her silhouette. She had dark hair like her mother, pinned up into a cute bun on top of her head. Mommy, can we go? It's cold. Not yet, Annie. Mommy really needs to use the washroom. But I'm really hungry. The woman whipped around to her daughter, and I got a clearer look at her face. She resembled the woman almost identically, except she didn't look like she was about to collapse from exhaustion at any minute. In her hair, she wore a beret decorated with the same jewel-encrusted cameo that her mother wore. Annie hissed the woman, just wait outside for ten minutes, okay? I'll be in and out. I instantly felt horrible for the little girl, and for the woman, too. They reminded me of me and my mom, or at least how things could have been, if not for my beloved grandparents. Hey, I blurted, why don't you both come in for some free pizza? It's warm in the restaurant and... No, the woman exclaimed. No, no thank you. Annie is perfectly fine waiting outside, but that is very generous. It's on the house, I repeated, my eyes pleading with the woman to come inside. I wasn't sure if it was pride or fear or what that was leading her to reject my offer, but I wanted her to understand. I wasn't judging. I sincerely wanted to help. I could think of no better way to honor my grandparents' memory. Plus, we were already going belly up. Two or three free pizzas wasn't going to change anything. The woman was silent. She seemed to be weighing her options. Mommy? Annie squeaked. With a huff, she grabbed her daughter's hand and dragged her past me into the restaurant. All right, but let's make this quick, okay? Mommy's hungry too, Marianne. The pair ended up staying two hours, tops. I fired up the oven and made, in total, four pies, all of them for Annie, 
who ate two of the pizzas with a passion and joy that I hadn't experienced since my own grandmother cooked for me. Her mother, Layla, took no food, insisting that she had plenty of things at home that would go to waste if she didn't consume them tonight. When Annie was finished eating, I boxed the remaining two pizzas and pushed them into Layla's arms. For the rest of the week, I said, flashing her a smile. They keep pretty well for lunches, just one less thing you have to do this week. Layla, who had remained mostly stony and silent throughout the meal, glanced from me back to her daughter, back to me. She exhaled. You know, I never let Annie come with me when... Well, there are just some things I don't want her to see. It's a mother's job to protect their kids, right? No matter what cards life hands them. I narrowed my eyes, confused. Yes, totally. I agree. Layla hesitated. Then she placed her free hand on Annie's shoulder. Thanks for feeding her, she said. We should be going now. Just don't leave the restaurant open this late. This neighborhood is crawling with creeps. With a wave goodbye from Annie, the two took off. I continued closing up as usual, but because of the encounter, I was a couple hours off schedule. By the time I locked up, it was a little past midnight, later than I'd have liked it to be, considering every single light in the neighborhood seemed to be broken. Plus, considering Layla's warning, I didn't want to be walking about in the pitch darkness in the dead of night here. Sure, it was only a five-minute walk to where I'd parked my car, but a lot can happen in five minutes. Briskly, I locked the door behind me and began the trek to the car. It was a little difficult to see in front of me for how dense the darkness was, so I illuminated the path with the flashlight on my phone, and... And that's when I saw him. In the glow of my phone's flashlight, I made out the silhouette of a man just a few feet away from me. But he wasn't a human man. He was tall, taller than anyone I'd ever seen before, but his back was bent at an angle, twisted so that his wrinkled, elongated neck swooped down to eye level. When I saw this, I gasped, frozen in fear, unable to do anything but stare. His fingers were long and seemed to be bent and broken at strange parts, his face emaciated with chunks of flesh peeling off his cheeks like stale wallpaper. His eyes were shut, but his mouth was curved into a satisfied grin. I couldn't do anything. I was physically incapable of moving, screaming. I managed to pry my mouth open to let out a scream, but when I did, the thing opened its mouth as well revealing several rows of razor-sharp teeth. Shocked, I let out a loud yell. That's when the creature lunged at me, his bones making a horrible, scraping, grinding noise against the asphalt below him. I couldn't move my feet or my arms. My phone fell from my frozen hand, plunging the entire scene into darkness once more. I smelt the stench of ground bones. Resigned, I shut my eyes and waited for whatever painful death was waiting for me on the other side. But nothing came. I felt a rush of cold air envelop me, and then the sound stopped. The smell went away, and in an instant, I was able to move again. After a few minutes of regaining my breath and whatever was left of my sanity, I stretched my foot forward and felt my phone. Gingerly, I picked it up not bothering to do anything else but absolutely book it to the general area where my car was parked. When I got home that night, my mind was absolutely on autopilot. It was like my brain was still too fragile to process the entire evening, so it sent all my thoughts away momentarily just so I wouldn't go completely nuts. Even though it was past 1am, my husband had stayed up to wait for me, greeting me with a warm smile from his perch on the sofa as I walked through the door. Automatically, I sauntered into the living room, bending down to give him a kiss. What's that? he asked as I broke away from our quick peck. Hmm? What's what? That, on your shirt. It looks new. My heart pounded. Had the creature marked me somehow? Was a piece of his flesh clinging to the wool on my sweater? Bile rose up in my throat as the memories of the night came flooding back. Pinned into the fabric, right on my chest, was a cameo brooch, encrusted with blood-red jewels.
And that story was from the No Sleep subreddit. It's by user Simple Chocolate, and it's entitled, I let a woman eat for free at my restaurant last night. It was the best decision I ever made. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. This show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.